Well, good morning, everyone. You guys hear me? Um, yeah, my name is Jared. I'm one of the elders here. And if you've been with us, we've been a series in a series called All Things New, um, where each week we've been taking different issues that our culture is wrestling with, is trying to answer in one way or another, and we've been diving into it and trying to uh, show where the gospel actually intersects and answers those questions better than we can sometimes. Um, and I'm excited to share you, with you this morning on the area of art and goodness. Um, and our text this morning actually comes out of Acts four, chapter 14, verses 8 through 17, if you'll look with me there. Now at Lystra there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking, and Paul, looking intently at him and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, Stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in Lyconian, The gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates, and wanted to offer sacrifices with the crowds. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd, crying out, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men just like you, and we bring you good news, that you should turn from these vain things... To a living God, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways, yet he did not leave himself without witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. This is the word of the Lord. Father, I pray that as we look at your word this morning, as we try to figure out um, what, what is true about what our world says about art, what is not, how can we um, seek healing and wholeness and a way forward where we can reflect your goodness and grace um, in our lives. I pray that you would be manifest as we, uh, as we hear from your spirit, um, that you would speak to our hearts and that you would uh, do that work of encouraging us, of lifting the heavy burdens that we've put on ourselves and that the world has put on us and of giving us a new life and helping us to find rest in you, Jesus. In your name I pray. So as, as I was preparing the last few weeks, I came across this interview. And it was uh, with artist, well-known artist Robert Rauschenberg, who um, was a pivotal figure in uh, modern art over the last 50 years or so. Um, and it, if you're into that sort of thing, he actually has an exhibit at the LACMA right now. In 1997, he was interviewed by Charlie Rose for PBS, and he made this statement. He said, my greatest joy is in working. That's when I feel a wholeness and a celebration of unity with everything about me. And had he stopped at that statement, I would really have nothing to add. Um, I feel like that's a pretty good encapsulation of how God intended art and work in general to work in our lives. But he goes on. I feel a wholeness and a celebration of unity with everything about me, and I feel the least self-conscious. See, it's much tidier the other way if we can just talk about how great work is 
and how great art is. Um, but it's not that straightforward anymore. Ever since the fall, the great joy that we've been given in work and in creating and in making things has been encumbered with a broken sense of ourselves. See, like Adam and Eve realized their nakedness, we too are now constantly confronted with this vulnerability where we can't just think about what we're doing. We're now constantly confronted with how that affects us, how that reflects on us. What does that say about us? What does our work mean for our identity as humans? And there's a sense for many artists that when we're immersed in our work, we're the most free, even though lurking beyond every corner there seems to be this self-doubt or this depression, this fear of financial or creative failure, or maybe success. But what would happen if I succeeded? And then we have anxiety around success as well. In some ways, we can't escape it whether we succeed or whether we fail. And you've probably either had these thoughts yourself as you think about your aspirations, what you see happening in your life or hope to happen. Um, maybe you've had conversations with friends in a creative field or um, who are wrestling with similar things. Or maybe you're just constantly confronted with this being, living in L.A. where it seems like everyone has their side hustle or whatever it is they're giving their life to, hoping that when they achieve that, that will bring wholeness and meaning to them. Um, whatever it is, it might seem difficult to know what good news is in that situation. How, do you act, how does the gospel actually enter in and bring healing? And the situation we find Paul and Barnabas in actually offers great insight into navigating this condition and helps us find our way out of it. And a good subtitle for this story might be Mistaken for Gods. See, if we remember, Paul has just been preaching to the crowd when he looked and saw the man, and he saw his faith, and he said... He has faith to be made well, get up and walk. And the crowd's response to that is where we're going to spend uh, the bulk of our time this morning. They say, The gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. See, they identify them based on their gifts and their roles, which is sort of the same pattern that we continue in our, our world, where we introduce ourselves to someone and say, What do you do? What we're actually saying is, What are you? How should I value you? Um, and he goes on, and the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. So they shower them with praise, um, celebrating lavishly, giving them accolades, fanfare. And they say, you are gods, come down to us in likeness of men. Show us this goodness that you've obviously just manifest. Show us this goodness that you possess within yourselves. And this is exactly how our culture has come to treat the arts, and artists in particular, and really any notable work created with human hands. And to help us understand where this comes from, I want to go back to where the elevation of arts began. See, one of the things that happened in the Enlightenment, or the Age of Reason, is we had this separation of objective and subjective thinking. Uh, Rene Descartes coins them as two cultures in which he divides out the sciences, mathematics, things that we can deem clearly understood as rational, those become objective truth. Uh, and things that are not so clearly delineated as rational, the arts, philosophy, religion, ethics, um, things felt or experienced more than finitely known, um, those become subjective and maybe not necessarily reliable or something that we could extrapolate on. But this separation is arbitrary at best. Uh, it reminds me of, if you, if you guys have, are familiar with the co current conversation around ethics and science, uh, there's a big push right now to, to place a moratorium on human gene editing, 
which has kind of been building over the last decade or so, where everyone knew we were going to reach this point where we're going to have to say, hey, do we go forward or do we hold back? Like, what are the ramifications if we actually tamper with genetic code and how could that affect humanity for the rest of time? And it's interesting to me because in the objective culture that we've just divided out, we have no way to answer that question. So you have to appeal outside of it to this thing we call ethics. But what is ethics and what forms it? What is that overriding worldview that informs that ethics? Is it the Judeo-Christian reverence for human life where we know because of the way that Western culture has been formed by, by the story of Jesus and the story of the Bible that every human life has dignity and value and worth and that to corrupt that would be a mortal sin? Or is it something else? And what happens when that one guy in China who kind of does whatever he wants just continues to blow through the moratorium and experimenting in whatever way he sees fit? How do you call him back to ethics within that objective, rational frame? Is there a way to even hold people accountable? And see, the separating out of thought into those two categories, objective and subjective, actually presupposes something. Hans Ruckmacher, uh, in his book, Art Needs No Justification, puts it this way. He says, these words, objective and subjective, only have meaning in a framework of thinking where we start from a more or less autonomous, rationalistic man. We're starting from the same line of thinking, the same line of thinking that got us to the broken self, broken sense of self in the beginning. It's the same thought process that eventually gave birth to sin when Eve grasped the fruit and ate of it. This problem... Um, of assumed autonomy is that we don't actually operate in the rational, rationalistic sphere the majority of the time. More often than not, if you look at what's governing your thoughts on a daily basis, it's wrapped up in the feeling, the subjective area of that. Um, this objective rationality is sort of an elusive um, farce in some ways. And this has led to all kinds of brokenness. If you think about the way our culture defines sexuality or justice, and the way we try to come up with rules for keeping each other safe and keeping the world on the straight and narrow. Um, we attribute a lot of credit to ourselves saying, I can rationally say, well, I know that if I give consent to someone um, to have sex, that, that no one's going to get hurt because I am autonomous and rational and I have a full set of facts. And if we go, choose to go through with this, I've made a good choice. Um, but the problem is that we aren't autonomous and rational. And what seemed like a good idea one day is no longer a good idea the next. And the way that our understanding of sex to this day is so limited and shrunken that we don't understand the full ramifications of it on our human psyches and the way that it actually changes us and molds us. So that's just one example. But this separation not only is predicated on autonomy, but it has this unintended consequence where it creates the shallow view of the world, the shallow view where all of a sudden the only thing that can be known can be known with my five senses. And if I can't rationally pin it down, then I have to throw it out. And that becomes a prison, a prison that we're laboring in where we, we think, well, how do I access meaning then? How do I get to a full fullness of life if everything is this cold, rational, closed world? And we feel a need to break out of that. And where do you suppose we go? 
We go to the arts. We go to the arts to be um, that reenchantment that comes into our shallow, ordinary world and brings goodness and meaning and wholeness. And here is where that elevation of the arts that we talked about in the beginning happens. And it reminds me of the story of when I was visiting colleges, trying to decide what I was going to do in life and what I was going to study. And I visited the fine art department at University of Texas and went through the whole tour. And at the end, talked to the department head. And I was really excited um, about the program and everything they showed us. And so I asked her, where, where do graduates usually do after they come through the program? Like, what fields do they get work in? Do they, like, show their work in galleries? What does that look like? And she kind of scoffed and laughed a little bit and said, students accepted here are so committed to their work, they know they will never make a living at it. To which I asked, so do they pay you? No, I didn't actually ask that, but I, sh <laughs> I should have. Um, but it's this idea that arts are on this lofty plane of existence where it's, it's so great and it's so magnificent and it's so transcendent that we should be willing to give our whole lives and livelihood to operate in that sphere of existence. Uh, Rookmacher makes this case that in elevating art in that way, we create a sort of irreligious religion where we seek artists to bring us this goodness that we've lost in our objective, closed world. Uh, and when we do that, we mistake them for gods. We put all this pressure on them to be that goodness that we've lost. And this morning, I want to talk about two common responses to this cultural climate we're in with the arts. And then I want to talk about um, the right response. So the first response I want to call vainglory. And with different men, this could easily be what we see play out in our passage. See, Paul and Barnabas could have received what the crowds are doing, this praise, this adoration, um, offering of sacrifices. Like, that probably felt pretty good as they were traveling from town to town, more often than not being kicked out or stoned or left for dead. It was probably nice to get a little bit of admiration. But that's not what they did. See, vain just means producing no result, useless or worthless. Um, vainglory has consequences as well. There's a story about uh, the artist Michelangelo with one of his first works, the Pieta, uh, where it was widely praised and everyone um, talked about how amazing it was and how he portrayed Mary. Uh, and what was put on display in the Basilica, as the story goes, he was relatively unknown at the time, so he could walk around talking to different people. And he'd say, what, what do you guys think about the artist or who did this? Um, if you guys ever have fished for a compliment before, you know what that feels like. It, even if you get what you're looking for, it's somehow not satisfying. Um, to his dismay, though, they said, oh, this guy did it, which obviously made him want to set his hair on fire, as he's been spending probably the last three to five years on this marble sculpture. See, he had to set the record straight and get the glory that was due to him. So he literally etched it in stone. He took a chisel, and on Mary's sash, he inscribed, Michelangelus Bonaratus Florentinus Facibat, which translates to Michelangelo Bonarati, the Florentine did it. So no one will make this mistake again. And later, he was so ashamed that he vowed never to sign another work. 
One consequence of vainglory is it actually corrupts the very work that we're doing. And Michelangelo literally defaced his artwork just to make sure that everyone would know it was his. And it also overshadows our artwork. Um, I don't know if you guys are familiar with the way hype tends to ruin movies, where everyone's talking about how amazing this thing is. Then you go see it, and you're like, well, I may have enjoyed it had, I not, been, oh, had it not been overshadowed by this train that was out in front of it. I mean, it's sort of like the emperor's new clothes uh, dynamic, where you're so excited, and everyone's telling you something so great, and then you look, and you don't see anything there. Vainglory also has the tendency to short-circuit our current and future work. See, it can, have, it can cause this success or making something that we're proud of. It can create this sort of neurosis in music. What if my second album isn't as good as the first? Um, sometimes there's all these voices in the room now making sure that, and this happens with film all the time, if the budget's big enough, we need all these extra producers to make sure that the end product is going to be something that makes money, and it can actually short-circuit the final end result from even being something worth watching. It reminds me of what Tim Keller says. When he says, the more that we need to be justified in and by our work, the harder it is to actually judge the quality of it. Because when I need this thing to be something that brings meaning and gives me identity, uh, then all of a sudden I'm unable to look at it objectively because I need it too badly. I need it to be good so badly that I'll deceive myself into thinking it is when it's not. And see, this pressure caused by these expectations that are both from ourselves and from everyone in the world around us to make our mark or to maintain any, sex, any uh, success that we've achieved up to this point, um, it can lead to the second response of elevating the arts, which is crushing despair. And Rookmacher puts it this way. He says, the artist is supposed to be a genius, but a genius cannot be taught, we are told. And his, his delicate subjectivity should not be upset by others who say there is something to learn. So the young artist is left to find and express himself. Some reach despair, but they are reminded that it is art itself which will bring deliverance. The poor works of these sad artists often crumble under the load and disintegrate. And I wanted to go back to that part in the middle. The young artist is left to find and express himself. Imagine if Paul and Barnabas had gone down that road. Would they have felt pre pressure to perform? People are expecting of this, this of them now. What happens if they're found out? Like, Does that elicit all of this fear where they're like, what can we do to make sure people continue to believe that we're gods in the likeness of men? See, many of us wrestle with similar shame resulting from the expectations in our lives, whether they're ours or whether they're from outside. And the effects of these expectations of genius uh, can actually be life-altering. Later in the interview with Robert Rauschenberg, there's an interesting exchange around his struggle with alcoholism. And Charlie Rose asks him why he used to drink. And he responds, when you're drunk, you hate yourself. It's a depression. You drink to get over the depression, and then you drink to drink. And Charlie foolishly asks, what were you depressed about? I mean, this has been a great life. And we can say that maybe that was a, a 90s 
early 90s or mid late 90s lack of tact and empathy in understanding the dynamics of depression. Um, but we're, we haven't progressed much beyond that point today. Um, it underscores, his, his response underscores this assumption that if I'm successful enough in my work, then eventually I'll be depression-proof. I'll reach this point where I have this actualization and all of a sudden I'm on this new plane of existence. So when you see someone who could not be more successful in the field they've chosen and they're depressed, your world can start to crumble if that's your expectation. And see, sadly, depression is a common effect from this crushing despair. But what is the right response in all this? The way I want to outline it for, today, for us today is to object and to embody goodness. How do we object? What do I mean by that? By speaking goodness. M many have suggested over the years that perhaps what artists really are, part of their functionality, is to be modern-day prophets, where they look at the culture, they look at where things are going awry, and they call us back, or they challenge us. They point out injustice and say, look, this is not right. Um, and objecting is exactly Paul and Barnabas' first instinct in the situation. As the crowd begins worshiping and praising them for their miraculous work, verse, four, verse 14 says, but when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd, crying out, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you. We're just like you. We're just like you. I don't know what the modern equivalent is of tearing your clothes, uh, but I don't think it's silence. I don't think it's just going along with our lives. Um, see, speaking goodness very simply starts with not being silent. In 2016, Jim Carrey gave this speech at the Golden Globes that I've always remembered and I thought was one of the most poignant and, uh, yeah, just challenging things to say at an award ceremony. He says, thank you, thank you. I'm two-time Golden Globe winner Jim Carrey. You know, when I go to sleep at night, I'm not just a guy going to sleep. I'm two-time Golden Globe winner Jim Carrey. Going to get some well-needed shut-eye. And when I dream... I don't just dream any old dream. No, sir, I dream about being three-time Golden Globe winner, actor Jim Carrey. Because then I would be enough. It would finally be true, and I could stop this, this terrible search for what I know ultimately won't fulfill me. But these are important, these awards. I don't want you to think that just because if you blew up our solar system alone, you wouldn't be able to find any of us or any human history with the naked eye. But from our perspective, this is huge. We are all just men. So this could be probably a pretty good beginning to an objection um, to what is happening and to where the people around them are going awry. But Paul doesn't stop there. He doesn't just give this jab and leave the stage and leave people saying, well, you've just destroyed my whole worldview. What do I do now? He goes on. 
He says, we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways, yet he did not leave them without witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. So he gives this little sermonette that I want to draw three quick points from. He says, turn from vain things to a living God. Trade in your vain, useless, worthless glory that you found to be empty, that bank account that you've been saving up glory, and all of a sudden the economy's crashed and it's worth nothing. Trade that in for the living God from whom all life and goodness flow. And second, he clarifies God made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. And you might say, yeah, 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 we get it. God made everything. He made the world. I understand. Um, But the main thrust of this is actually we don't make God. We don't make God. He makes us. We don't make him in our own image. As much as we would love to and as much as that would make reorganizing our lives in a way that suits us. Lastly, he expounds, he did not leave himself without witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. See, if we're honest in our heart of hearts, no one really wants autonomy. As much as it sounds enticing to be your own boss, to do your own thing, To be alone in your work and really in your life is actually a little bit terrifying if you think of the ramifications of that. And we know that we're not if we let our minds linger there. We have this sense that we can't escape that we're not. And Rauschenberg describes this feeling that can sort of coincide with that when we're immersed in our work saying, I do feel detached. The sense that when I'm working well, I'm actually invisible. So then, what we're left with is the mark of fruitfulness is not a feeling of autonomy at all. It's not a feeling of being our own boss and look what I've done. If we're honest, the mark of fruitfulness is exactly the opposite. It's a loss of self. It's an invisibility of self. That broken sense of self that's lurking around every corner is finally quieting when we're immersed in what God has made us to do. And the God-given satisfaction of looking on, surveying the goodness of the work that he's given us to do, uh, he describes it this way. I want to talk to the guy who did all this. I don't know if you guys have ever felt that. When something comes out of your hands or your mouth or your job that you're proud of or that felt really good. And then part of you wonders, where did that come from? I didn't think I had that within me. And I think calling it inner genius, as we're told to do, doesn't come close to capturing that dynamic. And I think um, Bach used to 
at the top of every one of his works, he would inscribe, Yesu Yuva, Jesus help me. And at the end, he would inscribe, Sole Deo Gloria, knowing that this work is only happening in and through and for God. And you see, he echoes, and this feeling really that we have, the sense that we have when we survey our work echoes um, the Gospel of John. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. And I love the way the message renders verse 16 and 17. It says, when your bellies were full and your hearts happy, there was evidence of good beyond your doing. So satisfaction and gladness are evidence of good beyond our doing, which is the opposite of autonomy. No will of man ever made his own heart glad. I don't know if you guys have ever sat around and thought, man, I just want to be excited about something or interested in something or moved by something. It reminds me when my kids are like, Dad, I'm bored. It's like, well, what do you want me to do about that? Like, I can come up with some activities for you to do, but like, ultimately, that's, I can't control your engagement with the world around you. I can control it only so much. But the abundance of God's goodness is multiplied when we interact with goodness, good beyond our doing that has come into our life. When you have that innate sense, uh, that when our bellies were full and our hearts happy, there was evidence of good beyond our doing. We didn't make that stuff. We didn't make our hearts glad. We didn't provide those fruitful seasons for ourselves. And that's what it looks like to object by speaking goodness. So what is it to embody the goodness? And this gets to our goal. Uh, If all of this has been an examination of where we've come to at this point in our culture with art and how we interact with it, um, this is maybe the, uh, the application. How do I put this on the ground as I go to work tomorrow or I work on my craft and try to um, do it all things to the glory of God. Rookmacher puts it this way. He says, um, by the artistic image, the essence of a society is made common property and reality. It gives these things form. Through art, things are brought closer to us. In a way, we begin to see things because the artist has made these things visible for us. Seeing as I understand it here, is closely tied with understanding, with grasping the meaning of things, with building up an emotional relationship with them. So to make or create is to actually embody ideas and to bring them near in a way uh, that humans can interact with that goodness. Um, It's to give it form in a way that humans can understand it and experience, and it can become common property to all. Um, Where the philosophies and the religions and the Uh, good sayings and wise sayings of how humans should live their lives is actually brought to the ground in a way that people can understand it and know it, interact with it. And we see a perfect example of this embodiment at the beginning of the passage. See, Paul has just finished preaching uh, this message, this gospel message of healing in the kingdom, of coming near to God and having your uh, sins forgiven and having a new life in him. And then he brings that message near to the ground, literally healing the man who was lame. See, bringing the truth of goodness near through our work often involves healing what's broken. It's no longer just 
a portrayal and a depicting of the goodness around us. Now it's an acknowledgement of what's broken and restoring of that. I should note, um, I'm not, just in case any of you are hearing this saying, well, now I need to become a Christian artist and I need to, uh, you know, write Soli Deo Gloria at the bottom of everything I do. That's not what I'm saying. I'm not saying that art needs to be evangelistic in a utilitarian way, um, where we say, well, how am I telling the gospel story didactically through my art where I have creation, fall, redemption, and restoration? I'm not saying any of that. So if you heard that, I apologize. I did not communicate that clearly enough. What I am saying is that all art, by its very nature, brings goodness near to us. And that is what we endeavor to do when we make, when we create with our hands. And in that way, all art is evangelistic. The artist, Isaiah, describes the goodness of God's healing kingdom coming near in this way. He says, Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute man sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand shall, come, shall become a pool, and the thirsty ground springs of water. In the haunt of jackals where they lie down, the grass shall become reeds and rushes, and a highway shall be there, and it shall be called the way of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it. It shall belong to those who walk on the way. Even if they are fools, they shall not go astray. No lion shall be there, nor shall any ravenous beast come upon it. They shall not be found there. But the redeemed shall walk there, and the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads, and they shall obtain gladness and joy, goodness beyond their doing. And sorrow and sighing shall flee away. See, when the, John the Baptizer's disciples are sent to ask Jesus, everyone's saying you're the Messiah. Is this true or should we look for someone else? He quotes Isaiah and says, go tell him what you have seen and heard. Jesus says, today this truth is embodied in my coming. You are seeing and hearing it. See, this embodiment or this bringing goodness near that we're tasked with doing as humans, we didn't make that up. That doesn't only define our work. Um, first and foremost, this is the nature of God's work and his agency in the world, and everything that he does has always been about bringing himself near. See, in Christ, God has once for all brought goodness beyond our doing near to us. God has done what the law weakened by our flesh could not do. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. And now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by his own blood. By his wounds, you have been healed. See, this goodness beyond our doing, uh, that we are brought near to God in a way we can understand, experience, taste and see that he is good. He's no longer an abstract idea or a wise saying, or a theorem that we can extrapolate on. Um, he has flesh and blood, and he gave it for us. 
Today you can be healed. He will actually enter in and replace your desires for vainglory with humble sacrifice. We are willing to lose life to gain it. Because he was wounded, you can be healed. He'll replace the crushing weight of despair with liberating self-worth, where you can find rest not through your work, but through his finished work. Today you can be healed. He'll uncoil your autonomous fists. You want so badly to be the one who calls the shots, thinking that you can provide for yourself but he'll actually allow you to receive goodness beyond your doing. And we know that because he lavished, on, lavished it on us in Jesus. And I want to invite Katie to come up. To end this morning, I wanted to share a work um, that actually brings a lot of these truths near to us in a way um, that, frankly, I don't know if I captured. Um, but in a way where we can interact with him, where a way we can meditate on the goodness of God, how much he loves us, what he's done for us, what he's doing in our lives, and what he's calling us into um, alongside him. And after that, we'll head to communion. But as we hear these words, I want to invite you, to, you all to engage with them, to interact with them, to understand them, to probe their meaning um, however way you worship, however way you do that, whether it's singing along, whether it's meditating on them, um, or whether it's just hearing the words and letting them wash over you. Um, yeah, I just in, ask you to invite the Holy Spirit to speak to your heart now, um, and I'll pray for us um, as we enter this, this song. Jesus, I thank you that you have entered in, um, that you have embodied the goodness of God, goodness beyond our doing in a way that we could not access uh, when we tried to control when we tried to make a life that was small enough, small enough, a view of the world, an understanding of the world that was manageable enough for us to manage it. Um, Jesus, I ask that you would come in and that you would re-enchant our world with your glory um, and the gladness that you bring to our hearts and the joy that you fill us with um, in knowing that we are your beloved because you sent your beloved for us. Jesus, I pray that we would look at your face. Um, and as the psalmist says, that we would be changed, um, that we would look to you and be radiant, Jesus, as we're sent out into our weeks to create, to embody, to bring your glory and your goodness near to the world in a way where our neighbors and our friends can interact with it. Jesus, we need you. Jesu Yuva. Come into our lives and do this work for your glory and our joy. Amen.